concept for EPAR trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for EPAR trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade there is no e-commerce, it's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPAR trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPAR trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. Good morning from California. I am uh, Francisque Savignan, the founder and CEO of EPAR trade. Uh, it is nine o'clock. And welcome to Race Industry Now, the technical and business webinar series presented by ARP. With me this morning is Judy Kin and the co-founder of Epar Trade, and Jeff Hammond himself. So I see Jeff is on right now, but his camera is not on. So we're going to uh, wait for uh, Jeff to come in. So how are you doing, Judy, today? Perfect, perfect. Thank you. You know, I'm so excited about having Impact Racing on today. I always think about Bill Simpson, and I became friends with Bill the last couple of years of his life, last few years, and he was always out there pushing our platform to everybody and saying he would work for us now. So I just am delighted to have Impact Racing on. It makes me think of him. Absolutely. And I see Jeff. Uh, good morning. Uh, Jeff, you are muted right now. So we're going to ask you to unmute. We are going to bring uh, Ben O'Connor, who is uh, our uh, special guest today. And Ben has been with Impact Racing for many years. I'm fortunate I've known Ben for a long time. Nice to meet you, sir. How are you doing this morning? Francis? I'm doing great. I'll take it. Thank you. All right, great, All right. great, yeah. great. I mean, I don't know what I missed, but I'm sure you can bring me up to speed on it. And again, I'm just excited about, like I say, having your company uh, talk to us and talk to me in particularly about the latest and greatest uh, things that are going on in the world of impact, as well as especially restraints and anything else you can share with us. Because you know what the number one thing in racing is? 
safety. Safety, that's it. Yep. So go right ahead and, 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 and wow me for a minute here, okay? <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, we can start the, start the presentation. Uh, we'll bounce back and forth in and out of the presentation. I've got some things here that, that I can show on camera as well. But basically, mm -hmm. I'm going to give a rundown of a couple different topics. We're going to discuss some of the restraint technology and I should say things that we've learned as manufacturers in, in restraint technology and how it affects uh, or relates to biomechanics, right? The human body and how that, that affects what we do and the products that we use and how we develop them. Uh, to enable to develop a better uh, solution, a safer solution for, for the competitors. The other thing we're going to talk about is just some basic stuff. We're going to go over the different styles of uh, latch mechanisms and the different adjusters that are that are commonplace in the market now and some not so common uh, that I'll share with you as well. Uh, anyways, we'll, uh, I'll start the presentation here. And uh, can everybody see that? If I, no, probably not. Uh, let me see here. Share screen, there we go. So, more technical glitches here, all right, there we go. So, basically there are different latch types. There are two main primary latches that are used in competition motorsports. There are other styles used in the OEM applications, your, your common you know, clicker style that everybody's used to seeing in their uh, passenger cars, but the two common latch mechanism used in motorsport or what's called a latch and link and then mm -hmm. a cam lock. The latch and link, as to suggest, has a latching mechanism, which is this little lever right here that has a hook on it that hooks through a tab that goes through the, the, the mechanism there, right? And then that clips into place. Very simple, very reliable, right, uh, uh, system there. Uh, easy to use in terms of uh, egress, unlatching. Downsides are a little bit more difficult to latch everything together. You have to feed it through the different various loops and hook it. And sometimes mm -hmm. you're in the vehicle suited up, helmet on, that can be a little difficult because you can't really see it and, and move around. Maybe the mobility is a little limited. The other style is a cam lock. Cam lock is a lot like the factory OE mechanism in that it has several tangs instead of just one, these tangs right here, and they just clip into the mechanism. When the latch is in its latch position, you simply snap these in and, and you're good, you're done. To unlatch it, you twist the knob, in this case, it's got a lever, push the lever to one side or the other, it instantly re releases the, uh, the, the webbing. And I'm actually going to, here we go, let's do this a little bit better. This advantage is a little bit more expensive than, than a latch mechanism because it is a little bit more complex. Correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, uh, but I understood in the, that latch uh, link deal was basically, wasn't it developed by the military? Uh, you know, it, it's I can't, I can't speak with absolute certainty in that, but the, the original concept, but yes, that's people believe that to be the case. This was originally originated in uh, in military use and defense use, and probably somebody at some time saw them in a in a fighter jet or whatever and said, "Hey, you mm -hmm. know what? This could be really useful for what for what we're doing, right?" And uh, so I believe its origins believe do come from 
uh, either ear, either uh, the, the airplane industry or defense industry, one or right. the other. And yeah, that is that that basic concept of the latching uh, mechanism there for sure. So then there are different adjuster types, and we'll we'll cover the different adjuster types that are again common in the marketplace. Uh, again, your OEM vehicle has usually a, a ratcheting or a uh, self-adjusting uh, tensioner pretensioner that that just pulls it back automatically. But when you're a race car. Uh, you don't have those, you have to adjust them manually to get good and tight in the seat. And we're going to go over all that here in a little bit and the importance of being tight and all that. But the different types are we have uh, your standard knurled adjuster. And let me see here what I'd like to do. I'm actually going to jump out of the sharing real quick and I'm just going to show this to people so we can show you how these operate. All right. So can everybody see me? Can you see me all right? Mm hmm that down a little bit okay so this is your standard type of adjuster been around forever and it's steel construction it has a knurled uh bar that runs through the middle here and the webbing goes around it it comes up one side and then down through the other side and the way that that works is you simply pull on it and you pull on it like heck right to tighten it up and then to loosen it, you, you lift this here and then pull on the opposite side and it allows the webbing to crawl back through, back through. Again, the advantage of this very, very simple design, very foolproof, uh, fail-proof really, limited amount of components. Um, the uh, uh, disadvantages would be one of weight and also ease of use, right? Like I said, it's a little bit more difficult to pull the webbing through and you have to get your adjuster at just the right angle here in order to get that to release. If it's folded on itself, it's very difficult to, to loosen. So that would be the, the disadvantages of that. From there, we have what we call our, our QSR, quick safety release. And it is a, a wedge type setup. And what it is, is the, the webbing comes up through the, the, the backside here and see if I can get that see the loop here and there's a wedge right in here everybody can see that and it's black on black on black it's a little difficult mm -hmm. here but there's a wedge in there it goes around the wedge back down the other side and then out the bottom and the idea of that is that when you pull this tension on this it actually drives that wedge down into there's a loading surface right here and the harder you pull on it, the harder it pulls that wedge in there and the harder it locks onto the webbing, right? So it's a very good uh, mechanism in terms of, you know, the harder the impact, but actually the, the tighter it grabs on the webbing. The advantage is that it loosens quite easily by lifting up on the lever and a little bit more difficult to do here when you're not actually having a, you know, have the restraints on you, but I'll see if I can get this to work here, but. You can see it just, and it tightens very easily too. Mm -hmm. So very easy to use, good for quick driver changes. We typically use these on shoulders. Uh, we don't typically use them on the lap because they work a little too well. This lever right here, if it gets bumped into the seat or something like that, it may loosen their strengths while, while, in, uh, while in operation. So for those, the laps, we typically stick with the standard type adjusters or another mm -hmm. adjuster I'm gonna show you here in just a second. The third type of adjuster, or actually before we get into that, I'm going to jump back to the latch and link really quick here. We also offer this with an integrated 
latching length where the adjusters built onto the actual latch mechanism itself. And that's just nice because it keeps it good and compact. It lightens it up and gives you more room to tighten the, the, uh, uh, the restraint. So from there, and I'm sorry about the noise, got the stuff on my desk here, stuff clanking around. But so from there we have what we call our, uh, uh, this is an integrated uh, adjuster cam lock. So the adjuster is actually built onto the tang mechanism. So it's just, it's all, it's all right there. And again, you just clip that in place. Now, again, this one is, is very easy to use. It's got a, a knurled uh, bar in here too, but when you lift this little mechanism here, it actually lets go really easily. So again, very easy to tighten, very easy to loosen. So really good for driver changes, endurance applications, whether that be road racing or off-road, something like that. Um, uh, but more importantly, easy to get tightened. And we're gonna go over that again, the importance of being tight. And you're gonna hear me talk a lot about that, but uh, it's, it's very crucial. So, and that just allows that easy. And it's good, small, it's compact. It's all right built into the tang. So it's lightweight. And again, it gets it close to the center mass, which just makes it easier to get tighter because you don't have the adjusters off into the sides of the seats, digging in there or difficult to get to. So that's why, uh, why we developed that particular uh, mechanism. So from there, I'm gonna jump back into the PowerPoint presentation here. Oh, no, 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 current slide. And well, so we're going to go over the difference. Let me see. So the next thing I want to talk about, and this is when we're going to start getting into the biomechanics of, of, uh, of restraints and how it affects uh, people and how it interacts in, in ways that we've found to create a safer solution for people. And we're not alone in this. I say, when I say we mean the industry, um, two inch versus three inch webbing. Now, for many, many years, three inch was considered standard. It was mandatory by most sanctioning bodies. And, mm -hmm. and the thinking is that that was a strength issue. Uh, the reason they did that, they wanted something good and strong. And the textiles of the day didn't offer the same strength that, that they do today. Uh, so the answer to that was just more, more of the same, right? Bigger is better. So more webbing, wider webbing to get the strength they needed to pass uh, some of the stringent testing by uh, the different uh, officiating bodies like FIA and SFI and uh, whatnot. Um, nowadays, the webbing has gotten a lot better. So that's not really an issue anymore. We can pass any standard that's currently out there with two inch webbing uh, without any issues whatsoever. But there's a big advantage from the safety consideration in running a two inch restraint webbing versus three inch. And it really all has to do with, and particularly on the laps, People have been using two inch on the shoulders for some time now because of the different uh, frontal head restraints on the market um, because mm -hmm. they sit on the device better and I'll get more into that a little bit sooner. But specifically right now, what I wanna talk about is the, is the lap. So the advantage of the two inch versus three inch is that it sits better in the hip pocket uh, uh, better or the, the ilium as it's, as it's called, right? That big bone in your, in your hips, right? And the reason that that's important is that we want to keep center mass, the center line of the restraint, as low as possible in that, that hip pocket. And there's several reasons for that. One, 
it enables you to get the restraints uh, tighter. Meaning that if you take a three inch restraint and try to, if you, if you cup your hand and, and you lay your, your, your fingers in there, your four fingers in there, right? You're gonna mm -hmm. see that, you know, the, the middle fingers, you have to contort your hand to get your fingers to drop in the pocket of your, of your, of your palm if you curve your hand like this. If you pull a finger out, the three fingers just drop in there automatically much deeper in there, right? So you're already tighter to begin with, but it also less distortion on the webbing itself, right? And that's problem. That's uh, a good because it uh, eliminates or reduces the amount of elongation in the webbing and, you know, which is where the outer edges stretch more than the inner and all that. But, but at any rate, you can get the restraints tighter uh, by having a narrower webbing. The other thing that it does though, is it keeps the center line of the, of the uh, uh, restraint lower in the hip pocket. That's important to prevent lower back injuries to help reduce lower back injuries in frontal events. Because what happens is because your legs are very heavy, when you're in a, in a frontal event, your legs want to try to pull your body out from underneath you, which is the origination of where the term anti-sub came from in anti-subs and part of the reasons of, of why they were developed to reduce that. Um, and getting the, the webbing as low in that hip pocket as you can really helps reduce that rotation of your hip, right? Because your legs pull forward, it wants to rotate and pull you underneath the lap belt. Now that's critical, not, not because, not just for staying restrained in the seat, that's the, the obvious uh, thought, but more importantly, it's to prevent that, the, the hip from rotating, the pelvic from rotating, causing lower back injuries as, as a result. The other thing though, too, is very important is you wanna keep the webbing on the lap low. You don't ever want it coming over the top of the hip bone, the iliac crest as it were, because that can create internal injuries, right? It gets in the abdomen in a severe event and you're smashing, right? Your abdomen, you can create some, some pretty severe internal injuries that way. So your bones, your hip bones being the strongest part of your body make the most sense in terms of uh, stabilizing or containing that energy, right? So that's why we want the laps to be low as, low as you can get them, tight as you can get them, again, to prevent that rotation and to keep you planted in the seat. Um, and two inch restraints just do that much better than three inch, so. Well, I understand it right now, you know, that uh, NASCAR is making, you know, and requiring that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you talked, you touched on it. It's not like the first time that we've been had two inch in NASCAR. They had two inch uh, shoulder harnesses many years ago and then switched to three thinking it was better. But they right. weren't looking at it scientifically like you are at the moment. I remember a discussion that I had with Bill Simpson. And I know just sitting here it reminded me of the conversation. He pointed out to me, you can reach down and find your the point of your hip bone. Mm hmm. And if you can get that lap belt to sit down more on top of your legs and, and pull into that point of the hip bone, you, you prevent that anti-submarine and also prevent from riding up and creating uh, that internal injury. So right. uh, all of this, again, it, it's been discussed, but now I think, like, like I say, with, with science and a lot of the technologies out there today, and I love the way you've got it drawn up, especially where the, the lap belt is, you can see clearly where the point of that hip bone is and where if it's pulling down properly, it acts almost like an anchor. Yeah. And, and the good thing about it, people say, well, when you pull it too tight, you can't breathe. No, it gets it below your lungs. You can still breathe. You know, that yeah. doesn't restrain that, but it does keep you from, you know, going down and sliding down. 
uh, in the event of a, a frontal accident. <clears throat> and again, it's going to be a lot better on your back in the long run, keeping your back firmly against it, the seat that you're riding in instead of trying to hurt you. Yeah, correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, anything we can do to keep the belt below that that iliac crest there, right, and and help prevent that rotational motion there. Uh, but also the other thing though too, uh, and this gets also, and then we'll talk about anti subs as well. But the reason for being tight too is because we want to eliminate how much the hip area, or the that lower portion of the body moves forward in in a frontal event as well. Because what happens is Newton's law, object of motion, stay in motion. So you want to, you know, the further you're, you're stayed back and prevent from moving, the less the impact is when the webbing takes up its slack, right? And it does, it stretches, it moves. So by keeping the bottom, your, your lower portion of your body tight up against the sea the best as you can, it eliminates that energy. And that energy actually transfers up through the upper body in an event. It almost has like a cascading type of an effect. And, and I can't get into the science behind that. So much smarter people than I, uh, you know, uh, I can discuss that. If, uh, if you've ever heard of ICMS, uh, Council of Motorsports, um, it's a very, very good organization dedicated to safety in motorsports. And they've discussed this quite a bit at some of their seminars and uh, things like that. Some very, very intelligent people, both with NASCAR and IndyCar and other organizations uh, that are part of that council uh, that discuss these types of things. But anyways, I wanted to throw that out there real quick. Anybody interested in motorsport safety, it's a great organization to, to be involved with. Um, but yeah, so, you, you know, that's the other reason for staying tight on the bottom. Also, in a, in a rollover incident as well, uh, you want it tight there to hold you, keep you contained in the seat as well. There, there's kind of what of a misconception that that's what the shoulders do. And, and they do to a point when it gets to a severe motion that the spine starts stretching, that the shoulders would come into play to help you, uh, to keep you down in the seat in a rollover action if you're to land on the roof. But that's, you want the majority of that work to be done by the lower portion of the body, again, because it's the strongest part of your body. Um, go different shoulder types, or a variety of different shoulder types using the industry. And it really depends on the type of racing, type of vehicle uh, that, that you're, you're doing, some personal preference, but it's usually dictate, dictated more by the uh, vehicle uh, than, than the individual preference. Uh, individual shoulders are the most common, the ones on the far left there, where you've got two separate straps that would come up from the buckle or around the neck and then join back behind the seat. Uh, there's the U-type, which really, as it, just as it indicates, it really just goes back around the bar and then back over to the other side. That's very common in uh, uh, dragsters. Or, or vehicles that have, you know, like pro stock style cages or dragster type cages, pro stocks don't typically run that, but uh, where you've got a very limited narrow space to attach everything. Uh, V-type, same type of scenario where you've got one latch that would bolt onto a tab uh, behind the seat. Uh, transitions, really popular, like so when they went to the three inch, but then they had to address the needs of the, of the FHRs. Uh, they, they, did, they went from a three inch down to two inch to allow that really to abide by the rules really of where, you know, you still had to have three inch, but you wanted to accommodate FHRs. A lot of sanctioned bodies allowed the competitors to use this, what they call transition. One of the things that we had done um, early on to is a ways to meet the rule requirement for the three inch, but still fit the FHRs 
uh, very well is we did a fold over and sew where we literally took the three inch webbing, folded it over and sewed it on itself to narrow it where it went through the FHR. Technically still a three inch uh, restraint. So those are kind of the most popular deals. There are other ones for use in FHRs where they have, there's one where they have a, a three inch webbing underneath the device and then two inch webbing above the device. And that goes more towards uh, being able to pinch the device and keeping in place in a, in a frontal uh, motion, the body, the devices actually stay with the restraints. A lot of people don't know that. As you move forward, you slide underneath the restraints and it kind of helps that. Um, that's, that's certainly open to debate. I don't know that that's really that necessary, but people certainly find comfort in that. And I wouldn't uh, move anybody for doing it. Um, Anti-subs, probably one of the areas that uh, most questions come from because there's a lot of mystery revolving around anti-subs because there's so many different types and it's really, and they, they actually perform a variety of different things uh, beyond just their, their basic capacity or their most common uh, logical thing, anti-submarining. They, they really accomplish that in not a way that people typically think of. It's really not, they're not intended to be, to make contact with them to really keep you from anti-subbing. There's a little bit of that in severe cases for sure, but primarily what it really is to get to keep those laps in place in a frontal event, right? Keep the lap low. Again, it's all about keeping the laps tight and low on the, on the hip bone. And the increase of the different straps is, comes from a couple different couple of different requirements. One, prevent groin injury. Uh, when you have a single point, um, that, that can be a consideration in a, in a severe frontal event that could come back into the groin area and cause injury there. Uh, to compromise for that, you, you, you mount them differently. When you run a five point single strap, you actually mount it um, flush with the center line of your chest, stomach, body. It actually goes a little bit forward of the seat when you when it goes down through the floor, not back behind. And again, that's to prevent those types of injuries, but then it's not as good in containing the lower body back in the seat. So that's really where the six point and seven point and even the formula restraints really uh, come into play. Um, seven point kind of bridges the gap between both. You've got the, the, the two straps. We'll talk about six point first here real quick. So the six point, what it does is come down, hugs the thighs a little bit before going back. It's spread out a little bit as it go back about 20 degree angle. And again, that's to help prevent uh, groin injuries, but also helps prevent that pelvic tilt again, like I said, by anchoring further back. Um, the seven point kind of bridges the, the, like a five and six point combined. You've got the center strap that's still really is primarily designed to keep everything down and straight and in severe, severe cases preventing that anti-submarine. And then you've got the two outer straps, which again, help keep the, the hip rotation minimal. And it actually helps spread the, the hip bones or the hips apart a little bit as you go forward. Because when you move forward, uh, if you think about anything that's a, a webbing or a rope, if you tie it around you, the more you move forward, it wants to tighten around you. So it wants to compress the hips. This kind of helps counter some of that, uh, some of that motion. Um, the next style, and this is pretty common in IndyCar Formula One, uh, top fuel uh, is, is what's called a formula style. And it really the seven point on the end there is more popular than the, than the six point formula. We don't do that many, many of those, but it actually takes the anti-subs 
here and through a loop that's on the lap belt and then around the thighs and back to really help share that load on the thighs. And again, keep that rotation and that compression that happens. And then of course the seven point uses the anti-sub standard, anti-sub five point sub down straight with the leg wraps that, that go back. Um, this is kind of state of the art or, or I should say the most current technology uh, used. It doesn't work in every situation. Um, depending on the latch mechanism, you can't do it sometimes because you, there's nowhere to put the loops. If it's moving, if you're doing an integrated adjuster where it's built into the, into the uh, latch mechanism, it doesn't work um, in, in some other designs. So uh, mounting is a, another area that probably the most critical of, of all of them really is, is proper mounting of the restraints. And, and probably one of the things that uh, you see out in the field that's most commonly uh, incorrect. Um, a lot of injury can be prevented by just properly mounting the restraints. And a couple of things that we'll touch on, you know, when we're looking at shoulders, there's a range. You really want this much parallel with the top of the shoulder if you can get it. Um, if not, uh, you'll hear varying different degrees certain from manufacturers over the years. Bottom line is you want to minimize it. We really don't like to see that more than, than five degrees up or down, so 10 degree total. Um, mm -hmm. It's been common thought for many years that there's 10 degrees up or down or 20 degree uh, range. Um, like I said, I think the bottom line is you want to minimize that as much as possible. Now, certain FHR devices require, they really need a little bit of downward uh, angle to help keep the device in place. Again, particularly ones that uh, there's a particular device on the market that doesn't use a forward yoke, the, 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 the REF. It actually needs a little bit of that downward to help keep that device in place um, uh, versus slightly upward. Uh, but slightly upward is, is okay. Again, the shoulders aren't to keep you down in the seat. They're to keep you from moving forward. So if they're too far down, what happens is that that U effect I talked about the rope as your body moves forward, it wants to tighten it and wants to compress the spine, right? And then, and curve the spine in a way that's, you know, where your stomach's going outward ahead of your shoulders and, and hips, which isn't a, which is not a good scenario. Uh, so again, it's to eliminate, eliminate back injuries as well. Um, laps should be close to a 45 degree angle from your, your, your upper body positioning. And again, if you, the reason for that is you, Again, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say a compromise, but we're trying, there's two different forces that come into play with lap belts. It is, of course, the frontal motion that we're all familiar with and that the first thing that comes to mind, but again, getting back to like a rollover event, something like that, where the body's trying to leave the seat, then you also need to hold the body down into the seat. So if the angle's wrong, if it's too if it's too vertical in a frontal event, the body continues to move forward, right? Because if you're, you're like this and the, the motion's this way, it's gonna easily pull it. If it's more 45, right. it's harder to pull it, right? Same thing in a roller accident. If it's too horizontal, it's gonna allow the body to lift because it's gonna pull up on the straight. It gives you some range there. So the 45 is considered the best angle for that. And you want them really as close to the, the body as, as possible too. Really no more than 18 inches really from the, from the, from the hip, front hip edge there. You want to keep it pretty close to the, again, the minimize stretch. 
Uh, anti-subs, depending on the type of anti-sub, again, the single, as you can see in the diagram here, like I talked about before, is pretty much in a straight angle with the you know, neck, chest, and stomach comes down on the floor there. And again, that's as you move forward. So that doesn't come in and prevent, you know, to prevent uh, groin injuries. Uh, whereas your outer six uh, point straps are going to come more downward and then out. And, and sometimes usually you'll fasten the same locations as the lap, uh, although they don't have to be as long as it's in a floor location, uh, keeping that 20 degree angle. Now, all of that right there that you're uh, that you just pointed out, I think, is one of the most important parts of promoting that safety. I spoke about early on in our, our discussion is that if, if all of this is if if this is ignored, that no matter what kind of strap you've got on it, you're, you're going to make create physical harm to your driver. Right. It's not mounted properly. So yeah, I'm glad to see that. Yeah. No. That this sure. is something that's part of the presentation. Yeah, yeah, and I don't have detailed images here, but I'll talk about this briefly. I just forgot, just remember this. Um, you know, the hardware used and how that they're fastened in the vehicle is also important as well. Uh, particularly the laps, if you, if you notice this, like this would be a plate here, there would be a bolt in the center here that would go through the tab. So that's the angle that you want that tab. You don't want it lying flat on the floor, right? You want it, you know, even with your hips like this. And that mm -hmm. is really so that, and if you can, preferably you want to use a sleeve, a step sleeve, so that you can float the tabs, which is mandatory again in NASCAR, so that in, in any motion, it's not pulling on one side of the, of the webbing versus another, right? Which is, many would say, contributed to Dale Earnhardt's accident and the seriousness of it, uh, in that it sheared through the through their strengths, and I'm not going to comment whether the, the truthfulness of that or whatever, but that is a topic that people talk about uh, is a possibility. So uh, you do want, because the webbing will load the slot where it goes through evenly if it can float. If it can't float, it's going to load one side versus another. So, so that's important as well. Shoulders, same thing. If you're going to run a tab, you want them aiming, the tab aiming forward, just like the same angle as the webbing, right? Um, if you're doing a wrap around, it simply wraps around the bar. So uh, less of a consideration uh, there. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in the diagram here, I just noticed this. This would be, and I said that would be incorrect. That would actually be, you, you wouldn't see it in the diagram if it was correct. That would be uh, running side to side in the vehicle, not front to back there. So. Um, we talked about the adjusters and the cam locks. I went over that already about the new integrated uh, adjusters. So I won't bore everybody with that. Again, talk a little bit about SFI dating um, in, in the reasons that from my understanding, uh, why the dating exists and, and, and why or where that came from is really, it's based on a worst case scenario. Um, and I don't know when this was done, but at some point, and this really probably goes back again to the textiles of the day and whatever, but there's a very real uh, scenario which happens if you were to leave any textile uh, in, in sunlight, UV exposed to UV, it degrades its strength. It, it dries it out and it starts losing its strength. And it's a pretty, uh, pretty abrupt knee point uh, where it gets to a certain amount of UV light. And the determination was made at roughly two to two and a half years or somewhere in that area, right, was, was the, 
a worst case scenario. So that's where the kind of the timing came from. So everybody understands that that's not dictated by the manufacturers. A lot of people think that it's a, it's a conspiracy to sell more restraints. It's not a conspiracy. So conspiracy to sell more restraints. We don't set that cycle. It's not us. That's SFI that set those guidelines in, in FIA. Um, the reality is a lot of cars that may sit in a garage area, absent UV lights, you know, the restraints would probably be okay for a longer length of time. But in the competition world, you want to err on the side of caution and, and just replace the restraints every every couple of years as the, the dating indicates. Now, what SFI did a few years ago, they went from a born on date, which is the bottom, uh, the bottom one here, to an expiration date. And they really did that just to make it easier on sanctioning bodies and tech officials to really mm -hmm. know. They didn't have to guess and do the math or whatever as to, you know, because some sanctioning bodies may have allowed two, two and a half, maybe three, right? So there's trying to, a guessing game. And this really eliminates that uh, because it's clearly indicated on the on the tag now as to when that, that expires. So, and if a sanctioning body wants to extend that uh, further than that, so they have that prerogative. But, but it's an easier guideline to follow. It's easier to follow in the field. And it's, you know, easier from a manufacturing standpoint because you're not stamping and warehousing and things like that too. Yeah. Hey, real quick, we're just past the bottom of the hour and uh, we're starting to get a couple of people asking some questions here, Ben. And I just want to remind anybody out there that's watching this uh, webinar to please, if you got questions like Eric Brown has for us currently, uh, he, he wants to know, are there any restraint considerations needed for a larger driver, six foot tall, 200 pounds plus, versus a skinny kid? Is there anything there that I guess needs to be addressed? Uh, not, no, not really, because the, the biomechanics are all the same, right? Our, our mm -hmm. body shapes and, and types and bone structure is all pretty much the same. It, it, it is more difficult to get tighter if you have more mass, for sure. But the biggest consideration I would say in that scenario, uh, and this is a very real scenario in any form of motorsports, but most particularly in any type of endurance racing is during the course of the event, you lose water retention, right? You lose water, you lose mass, the restraints get looser. You also settle into the seat and, and your body just moves around. We're just big bags of liquid, right? So as you sit, the restraints, you know, even though they're tight, when you start, push things around and they can become loose. So uh, for someone with more mass, that's more likely to happen. So so you want adjusters that are easy to use, I would say is probably the number one thing. Um, but the angles, the positioning, all of that still applies. Well, another thing that I've learned from what you just explained, and if, if you're a crew chief or an engineer out there, you need to remind your your drivers, your spotters, whatever. Tell those drivers every now and then about halfway through a race, you know, check your belts, put your tights outside one more time because you are going to be loosening up. And I know a lot of drivers are good about making sure they stay secure, but every now and then in the heat of the battle, uh, they have a tendency to uh, get more interested in the moment than thinking about, hey, I'm this belts are loosening up. If I hit the wall late in the race, it's going to hurt. Yeah, right. And there's a big difference between a, a 10 minute heat race and a 30 minute main or, a, or an endurance race and road racing or off road or you run the Baja 1000 or something in the vehicle for several hours at a time, even more so. Right? It's even more critical to remember to do that. So, no, that's good. Any other questions? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, the thing is, you've addressed so many of them. I think the biggest thing is, uh, <laughs> 
what's what's around the corner? I mean, I think that you know what we're headed in and what we've been working toward um, for safety. You know, you've addressed so many of those points because originally, you know, we didn't bring in the factor of the human body. You know, we we were just saying, okay, let's just get them in a seat. And we realized the seats weren't worth a dang, so we built better seats. And then we we did, you know, what I'm saying it's been uh, right. climbing the ladder uh, for a long time now. In the last you know 25 years, it's just a general progression. You know, you you bring in the fact of, of a helmet here. I mean, it's going to be one of the next things. Uh, uh, I think the the other thing is the the, the testing. We have one of our uh, uh, attendees here was wanting to, to know about explain the difference between um, FIA versus SFI testing, uh, you know, is that the, is that just the main differences? They're just two organizations that you know they yeah. do different types of testing. Yeah, that that's exactly it. Um, they're just two different organizations. They share some standards. Some standards are different uh, between the two, but but the the concept is the same. Um, where you're loading the restraints a certain amount to make sure there are no failures, make sure there isn't slippage through the adjusters, making sure that um, uh, that, that the webbing is strong enough, the hardware strong enough and, and things like that. So relatively the same type of a deal. I wouldn't, I would never say that one's better over the other in terms of that. Um, there are certainly some, uh, uh, some, some, some room for argument to that, I think by some people, but I myself wouldn't, wouldn't look at one as saying, oh, I'm not going to run this versus, versus that in terms of safety. I think they both do a good job of defining what's needed and, uh, making sure that the manufacturers meet those the specifications of standards. So, you know, we some people might find it also interesting that we've mentioned NASCAR, we've mentioned IndyCar. How many different associations and do they ever have like a a seminar where all FI, SFI, NASCAR? Do you guys ever come together? Uh, and talk about it, you know, especially like with your company, or you guys ever get into those those things that, that discuss it globally, or is it more individually? Like you, Impact will go to NASCAR and talk to them or IndyCar. Yeah, I get that organization I mentioned earlier, ICMS is really, that was its intention was to bring the various manufacturers, right? And, uh, and, and organizations together and have those types of conversations. So that, that would, that's the one I know of that's probably the mm -hmm. most prominent. It's, it's dedicated purely for that purpose. Right. Uh, Trevor Ashland just sent in a uh, little bit of information here. We may find kind of like yeah, clear yeah. Up the FIA, SFI testing deal. You know, he says here, SFI testing is done statically. FIA testing is done, is finished off by dynamic testing. So right. two right. different procedures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that, Trevor. Yeah, thanks. And also, uh, you see here, you want to go ahead and address that, what Tom has just put up there, because I know I saw you, you kind of mentioned yeah, these yeah, that guys was early a, on. Right, that was a link for everybody, uh, right, to the ICMS website. So, again, I encourage everybody to, to check that out. Great, great amount of resources there. If you, if you today, with your involvement with Impact, and, the, and those of us out there, hopefully, you know, we've got, you know, track promoters maybe listening or whatever. Um, is there any area of safety that you feel like is, because you know, I know that your product is what it is, but are, are there areas of safety that a lot of these short tracks and people like that, that they're missing the boat and what can you offer up to maybe help them? I mean, like your uh, 
for example, the the mounting information that you have you provided today. Can they call and talk to Impact? And can Impact, you know, advise somebody? I, I'm building a race car and I want to know how to mount my seat, know how to mount my belts and stuff. Right. And can you help me? You know, as far as the safety side of it, do you guys have that available? Yeah, I think that yeah, there's two things, you know, on that note. One is having knowledgeable tech officials at, at the track. And, and I understand a lot of times they're, they're volunteers, uh, but they may not have the best knowledge base. You can certainly contact us anytime. We're always more than willing to, to help in that regard. As I know the other manufacturers are as well. You know, we're not alone in that. Um, I've even attended races with tech officials and, and done some uh, mm -hmm. light, like training or... Um, uh, to that aspect, or or just help tech officials, the, the racers, and educate them as well, right? And to to proper mounting and things like that. So, so yeah, no, we're certainly always willing and more than able to to do that. You know, uh, again, I'm gonna throw something um, out there. And again, thank you, David Green, who is one of the guys that works with NASCAR in their safety division. He's a former driver and former champion. Uh, does a great job of keeping up with what's going on in their three divisions. But uh, what I would love to think about, we're, you know, look coming toward the end of the year, we're going to have industry week once again. Maybe we could get together and do a, do a live uh, one of these again, but maybe do it in it's such a place where we could have it set up where we could show, you know, these angles and these things, just like your drawings, but use maybe live people to, to go through some of this stuff a little more, um, you know, for, and when I say this, Make sure that the the all the racetracks around the country, around the world, can maybe get an opportunity to watch us go through this again, and and yeah. maybe better explain it and work through it. Yeah, it'd be a great video topic, I think for sure. Um, uh... Yeah, you're reading the same one I'm reading. <laughs> I hear. It. Oh yeah, oh, man, all everybody's all getting wound up. I love it. David says number one issue is constantly not have the customers follow manufacturer directions. And David, that's kind of like where I'm coming from is I've <laughs> yeah. wondered if we could go through this. You Ben's did a great job, but you know how it is if we had to, maybe a cutaway roll cage and a seat there and going through, you know, having a, a live guinea pig in there and working through some of this stuff, uh, if it would be more inf informative to them. So um, Jeff Thorne asked about the replacing the harnesses. And I know that there's a lot of, series that don't follow like nascar or any car about yeah okay you got to get rid of them right. uh best thing i can tell you if you're if you're running dirt tracks and if you're running short tracks and you're washing and cleaning your cars and not taking care of keeping those things uh from getting wet being out in the out in the great outdoors like nascar and indycar would, would be doing uh you need to change them pretty regular if they get any kind of freight and even after hard impacts don't after be afraid that, I was, to, I was to pull them out say. and put new ones in it i mean that's, that's right. one of the cheapest things you can do because to save someone's life or physical injury because well you know we thought this and we thought that don't think it's just real quick you have a hard impact toss them. that's right yeah you stress those fibers and hardware um some of the sanctioning bodies out there uh, it, it, it can infuriate a racer at, at times. They'll literally cut them out of the car. And uh, that, that's probably yeah. a uh, somewhat of a combative measure, but, but it is 
you know, it ends that that problem because you will have people that, well, they look fine to me and they'll just they'll continue to use them when they may be compromised. So you don't really know unless you have instrumentation on your body in the car. Right? You don't know how many G-forces the restraints are seeing in these events and right. what could seem like a fairly mild event, as we all know, can be fatal, um, even though it doesn't look that bad. So absolutely, it's a very good point. You want to replace the the harnesses anytime you're in in an event that's any kind of serious nature short of just rubbing the guy next to him spinning out right uh right. yeah that, that definitely you you want to uh certainly anything we have to extract the driver or the cars on its you know on the side or on its lid or something like that you know you might want to read this being this this last one from tom weisenbach about what he has offered up here and you may be familiar with it because again uh you work with these folks regularly mm-hmm that is the IMCS will host the racetrack safety program in December. It's a one day seminar on track safety. And we have, have had discussions and demos on a lot of the topics that you guys are touching on here sure. today, or we've been talking about here today. And I, again, I, I think that's wonderful. And that's one of the things that are lacking in between David Green and Tom. I think they are, they're hitting it right in the heart. If you want to protect your driver, if you right. want to think about the, the, Number one thing in racing is not racing, it's safety. Because you want to be able to go to that racetrack, have fun, and come back and be able to talk about it with your buddies and your girlfriend and your family. You don't want everybody to walk away happy. And the the only way you're going to do that is is not cutting corners. And I'm going to go ahead and bring this into play. We haven't touched on it. The rest of your equipment, your helmet, your restraints, your head and neck restraint, your fire suit, your underwear, everything, your gloves, do not cut corners because when you start cutting corners, that's when they're going to jump up and they're going to bite you. And a lot of times you don't get a second chance. So uh, I'll right. make sure that we drive that home. I've been around racing, you know, pretty much all my life. And I've watched and, and seen a lot of stuff come from tragedy. And you touched on Dale Earnhardt. You know, one of the biggest tragedies we've had in NASCAR has led to a lot of what we're seeing here today. The carrying that's being put in to what your company is addressing here today, uh, it's, it's huge. And that's the reason why we see these big wild impacts and people walk away. That's they right. don't even have to be put carried away on a stretcher. They, they walk away. Uh, I think, you know, most recently, the Ryan Newman crash in Daytona uh, mm-hmm. had us all holding our breath. Oh, my dear right. God, we're, we're, we're getting ready to go back down this road again that we don't want to go down. And fortunately, uh, we've now had, again, improvement, and I think that we we just can't overemphasize how important safety is, and again, I've, I'm seeing stuff here from David Green. David, I really appreciate you tuning in here today and seeing what we're talking about, because yeah. uh, I know how much you care. You've, you've been there. You've done that, and this, this is what we're trying to do, is we are wanting to, uh, you know, just do everything we can to, to help prevent these guys. Getting hurt. I mean, this is what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I thank him as well. It's great to have people like that involved in these these processes like this. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, touching real quick on the or going into racing cars is really dirty. Yeah. Um, How do you claim? It's a good question, and this really common issue in in off road as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happens is the uh, the, the the dirt and mud and stuff gets caught between the, the fibers and embedded in the fibers, and it makes it very difficult to adjust as you can see here. Yes. Um, one 
look at the manufacturers and what type of webbing they're using. Um, you know, how soft and pliable it is. It's it's something that you can't typically see on, in the website or whatever, but that makes a difference. We try to use a very soft and supple, but yet not, but it won't stretch. Uh, webbing and tight weaves kind of prevent that. But to answer the question, uh, mild, mild detergent, soapy water. Um, uh, I was going to say... Uh, I was told one time the ivory... The ivory what, is uh, really good. Ivory or, or wool light. Wool light is always yeah. good for that stuff, right? And right. You can just wash them in your sink well, and let them, let them dry, right? So I, I've had, I've actually had people ask me one time, put them in the dryer. I do not how to answer this is uh, dry clean. Pull them out and get them dry clean. Is that? I don't, you know, they use chemicals and they dry clean, right? Some I know. And that's why I say I don't know the answer. Yeah. I would not recommend that. I would stick right. with something like a wool light or something like that, really mild. Uh, in, in air dry, do not put them in the dryer. <laughs> hang them so, out on, cl on clothes hanger, yeah. whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, the car wash, you guys will just spray them off of the car wash and, and it's probably fine, right? So uh, you guys want to make sure they dry pretty quick. You want to sit and rot and that's another another consideration too, so. No, and, and what, what, let's get to that point. Let's say, let's just say you are a dirt racer. Let's just say, that, you know, uh, we're going through this kind of stuff. I mean, what would you say the lifetime on a, on a belt would be if it's been raced? Let's just say you race in 25, 30 races a year on dirt, or even if you're a local short track racer, should they follow the recommendations that FIA and SFI set out? Is that, is that the best thing to do when in doubt? Or what, what do you think the limit is? No, I think those are very good guidelines to, to follow because the problem is, like you said, it's, it, while it's based on the worst case scenario, we don't know personally what are, from our own experience, what's that worst, have we met that worst case scenario, right? If, if your car sits in yeah. open trailers, the sun 24 hours, you, you know, every seven days a week, then yeah, you're probably gonna hit it pretty quick, you know, if it's a garage, maybe not so, but you just don't know the heat, UV rays, even sitting at the track, sun beating on it, you know, whatever. Um, right can lose that strength. So I think it's definitely wise to, even if you're not required to, to, to change those out every couple of years, two and a half years, I think is the maximum allowable yeah. now, uh, which is- Well, Tom, like I say, Tom Weisbach is, is kind of like confirming that. He says, you know, you guys go and race. First thing you do, you go to a car wash, rinse your car off and everything. And, you know, the equipment sits outside the next day and it's drying. Uh, I mean, what you're doing, you're breaking down the integrity yeah. of the material you're using and you keep on addressing it. And we, we went to three inch because we felt like that was a better way. We're adding material so you're going to be able right. to keep somebody from stretching them as much. Now we're talking about reducing it because we got better quality material. But still, if you don't take care of it, treat it properly, what, what are you doing? You might as well just not even be wearing one. I mean, right. I'm exaggerating. Don't get me wrong. I'm getting exaggerating. But all right. of these things we're touching on is for the for the betterment of the individual that's sitting within the restraint that they're wearing. If it's not right. functioning properly, then you know you're going to hurt somebody sooner or later. So stop cutting corners. Like I said before, the number one thing in racing is safety. So right. think right. about it like that. Well, it's really been good. We got about uh, two minutes left here. Ben, would you have anything else you want to share with us? No, I, I think that's pretty much it. I think the only thing I would say is, you know, when you're talking about rest of equipment, one thing I always like to mention is uh, you want to be as comfortable as possible in the equipment you're wearing. And the reason for that is you don't want to be a distraction from your driving. Uh, you want to stay focused on your driving. And the best way to prevent injuries is to prevent 
an event from ever happening. And the best way to do that is to be focused on your driving. So I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. No, you, you bring up another good valid point. Make sure you're comfortable in your seat. Make sure your helmet fits like it's properly. It needs to do your restraints are doing their job. And at the same time, to me, um, what I have had experience in from racing is when I'm sitting there more, more worried about what's in front of me and some, this is that I'm being held in the seat properly. My helmet is comfortable. I can see like I need to see. I can go racing and not be fighting uh, uh, basically uh, something sticking me, you might say, or poking on me or distracting me because I'm, I'm not comfortable in my environment. You should be as comfortable in, in your environment as you are in your home and your recliner. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No right. distractions. Again, thank you very much for being with us today. Appreciate the folks at ARP for helping to sponsor our webinars. And Francis, I, I think that maybe we've gotten some people's attention today. What do you think? I think we did. Uh, I think you uh, did a beautiful job, Ben. And uh, thank you very much. Jeff, you were terrific as always. And uh, we're so glad to have you hosting our webinars. And uh, the webinar has been recorded. So it will be posted later on the portrait platform as well as on our YouTube channel. We also pushed uh, Ben's product, Impact's, Impact's product, back uh, on the homepage of ePortrait. So if you uh, have any uh, follow-up questions, go on ePortrait.com, connect, engage, and you know, you'll be able to touch base with Ben and you know, thousands of suppliers from around the world. We built this platform for you, for the racing industry, to be able to connect and engage all year round and globally. So thank you for watching us today. We will be back next week uh, at nine o'clock for double uh, um, feature next week. We're going to be uh, hosting the people from MacGlock and uh, Fluid Logic, and we're going to be talking hydration uh, for drivers. And then we're going to be joined by our good friends at racer.com for a special on historic racing at the Monterey uh, uh, event. So thank you very much, Ben, great having you. And then uh, yeah. hope to see you uh, soon at the track. Thank you, Jeff. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. See you next All right. Thank you. Bye. Registering on ePartrade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number, and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose claim company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose join company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.